You know, ministry can be tough. Any of you who have served in the trenches of ministry know that. And in modern history, there are many great examples throughout the church that we can see this being true of. One that we'll look at today is in the early 1900s, where it's during that time that the phrase one-way missionaries was termed. You see, during this time, there was a group of missionaries who knew that they would be headed to dangerous territories to share the good news of the gospel. Knowing that there could be a good chance that they may never return home, they packed their belongings in a coffin and purchased a one-way ticket to their destination, saying goodbye to their friends and their family, possibly for the last time. To these heroes of the faith, ministry was a worthwhile sacrifice. And as we look at the example of the Apostle Paul, we see him doing something similar today as well, as he is saying what he thinks will be a final farewell to people whom he dearly loves. The Apostle Paul understood deep trials, suffering, and the struggles that these missionaries went through. In fact, he shared it with a group of men that we meet as well today, men that he dearly loves as he shares this sort of farewell address. And so from our time today, we're going to pick up just a lot of different little seeds from Paul's example, from his teaching, and from his ministry, which is why I've titled today's sermons, Lessons from Paul. But as we begin, the first thing that we do, or that we're going to see, is we're going to see Paul's elders. We're going to work our way chunk through chunk through this text together, and we're going to start in verse 17, where it says, Now from Miletus he sent Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when he came to them, when they came to him, he said to them, and we'll stop there for a moment. And we find ourselves here in Miletus after Paul had miraculously healed Eutychus from the dead and he continued his journey. It's here that the author of the book of Acts, Luke, records Paul's only recorded speech here at his third missionary journey. And interestingly, here in the book of Acts, this is the only speech that is shared with just a Christian audience. As we find Paul here sharing with these men, these were elders whom Paul had served with, whom he loved, and whom he discipled. If we look back above verse 17, back into 16, it shares with us that Paul decided to sail past Ephesus due to time constraints and possibly because of safety reasons. Some commentators have noted that it would be about a day and a half journey from Ephesus to Miletus, So it was a significant distance for him to be able to save some time traveling to. Now, as he speaks to these men here, it took them a day and a half to get there. It would take them a day and a half to go home. But there was also time where this message was going to have to get to them. So we can imagine that these men were hearing from Paul and basically reserving a week of their life for this. So this was a time in their lives that they really wanted to go here and see this man, knowing that this must be important, and quickly finding out it's probably the last time they would ever hear from him. Other commentators note that as Paul speaks to these men, he does so using emphatic pronouns that suggest that these men knew exactly the struggles, exactly the trials that he faced 
They could relate to him. They rubbed shoulders together in ministry. They clearly had a relationship with him. And they wanted to meet with him this one last time. From this, then, next we see Paul's example. And Paul used the power of his personal example to train these leaders. Let's look at the second half of 18 through verse 27. It shares with us, Paul saying, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Verse 23, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Verse 26, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul here uses the power of his personal example. Now sometimes Christians, and I often fall in this category myself, often kind of hesitate when we talk about using our personal example to teach someone. And oftentimes that's for good reason, as there's fear of pride. We don't want ourselves to get in the way of the message that we're trying to share. But we see from Paul's example here that sharing your personal example can be an incredibly effective way to teach. Now, Paul didn't shy away from this because Paul's boast wasn't in himself or the deeds that he did. No, Paul's boast was clearly focused on the Lord, and it was focused on giving him glory. So, he didn't shy away from using the example of himself. And so we see through Paul's example four different ways of how he used it to be able to teach these men and things that we can glean from it as well. We see from Paul's example, first of all, that he served with humility and with self-denial. It shares, verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials, we'll call that self-denial that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Let's first look at humility. The Prince of Preacher, Charles Spurgeon, says this, that humility is to make a right estimate of oneself. And Paul correctly understood that everything, including his body, was to be used as a tool to share the good news of his risen Savior and to bring glory to God. Through that ministry, he experienced both tears and trials. We define tears here as referring to the personal connection and care that he had with these people. Paul truly cared about them. He ministered to them. He forged personal, strong relationships with them. 
In fact, if you were to look at another one of Paul's writings in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, it says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul had a deep relationship with the people whom he ministered to, but also he saw many trials. And as we think of Paul, and as we think of not only him here in the book of Acts, but in his other writings, we often see him gracing fate, great, facing great trials after his conversion, dealing with persecution, during, dealing with imprisonment, with emotional and physical distress, often risking his life for the gospel. Another example from 2 Corinthians 11.24 is where Paul says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Paul received 39 lashes, which was the same number of lashings that Jesus received before his crucifixion. Yet, Jesus, or yet Paul received them five different times. Now, this was the maximum number of lashings that the Jews would deliver in order to keep the law found in Deuteronomy. Yet, despite the persecutions that he faced from uh, physical imprisonment, from these lashes, from the emotional distress, despite these difficulties, Paul kept going. He was all in at all times for his faith. He served with humility, he served with self-denial, and we see that he held nothing back. In fact, if we were to look at the book of Philippians, also authored by Paul while he was in prison, we see him saying this in Philippians 3, 8 through 10, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul held nothing back, and we first see that he held nothing back spiritually. Look, at, look with me, please, in verse 20. <clears throat> it shares with us there how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Paul, it shares here, did not shrink, or this could be translated, did not hesitate he never hesitated to share anything that was spiritually profitable with the people he was ministering to. He always took advantage of the opportunity to share spiritual truth with them. He had fostered deep relationships with these people, and he told them all that they needed to hear to build them up in their faith. Now, we don't see directly this here within the text, but as we relate it to the rest of his writings, we see example after example of him calling the church out in their sin, reminding them of their new life in Christ, correcting them, teaching them, guiding them. He never didn't take an opportunity to share with them what they needed to hear. As well as we look at his example, we see that Paul wasn't looking to intentionally offend people, 
but he wasn't afraid to offend them if it was for their spiritual good. So Paul shares with us here a model of how we should talk to others about our faith. How he didn't hold anything back, but he did so appropriately. It also shares with us that Paul taught both publicly and house to house. Now house to house here likely refers to home churches at the time, but we get the basic idea here that Paul was teaching both publicly and privately. It didn't matter if he was with a large crowd or if he was with a few in a home, he was continuing to share publicly and privately the good news. We that dovetails with our next point then, which is that Paul held nothing back evangelistically. As we look at verse 21, it shares with us testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul was sharing here was the gospel. And Paul preached what we could call an inclusive message, a message where no one was excluded. The good news that he shared was available to all, both Jews and Greeks. We see this theme not only throughout this book, but as well through Paul's other writings and throughout the New Testament. And as Paul held nothing back evangelistically, we see here that he preached a gospel of repentance and that he preached a gospel of faith. Paul's message was one of repentance and of faith. Let's first look at repentance. To repent means to turn away from one's former way or purpose. Many preachers, many commentators have shared that repentance of it is a change of the person and always from the mind to the emotions to the will. Repentance results in a change of actions. And when a person becomes a Christian, they turn away from their former way of life. And they turn towards a life that is glorifying to God based on what God has shared with us in his word. A person becomes a Christian when they change their mind regarding their past rejection of Christ and when they embrace him as Savior. Now keep in mind here that Paul calling upon these Jews and these Greeks to repent was going to be incredibly countercultural. In order to repent, the Jews would have had to have turned away from their Old Testament laws and traditions and embrace the risen Christ as Savior. In order to, for the Greeks to repent, they would have had to turn away from all of the idol worship that we find littered throughout this book and put their trust in one God, in the true God. Repentance cost these people their previous way of living. And repentance costs us our previous way of living as believers as well. Next we see, though, that Paul preached a gospel of faith. Now, faith is defined as confidence in someone or something. If a person has faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, they believe and have confidence what, about what the Bible says about Jesus paying the penalty for their sins. They believe that the Bible says and have confidence in the fact that they can do nothing to earn their salvation in and of themselves. But it is a free gift to God that is given to us by his grace. They believe and have confidence in the fact that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection paves the way for the person to call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. Let's think of it this way. 
Let's imagine for this morning that several of you are going to participate with me in an exercise that some of you have done known as a trust fall. So let's say, and we're just going to imagine this, we're not going to act it out today, that several men stand down here in the middle of the aisle and they lock their arms together. And I stand here at the edge of the stage and I turn around and I lock my arms together and I fall backwards. Now, as I fall backwards, I am putting my trust in these men to hold my weight. Before I do this, though, I see these men. I see their size, I see their build, I see their perceived strength, and I trust that they are able to catch me as I fall backwards. And I put my trust in them to do so, and then I fall off the stage. Now, at that point, I examine the evidence, but I have faith that they are going to catch me. Now, faith is based on evidence, but there always remains a level I don't want to say blind trust, but a level of trust that I have to fall into. I can trust that these men standing down the aisle are going to hold my weight, but that doesn't mean that they will. As a person comes to faith in Christ, they don't have to have all the answers to all the questions figured out. In fact, none of us do, regardless of how long we've been Christians but they are putting their trust in a God who promises to catch them. And the Bible shares with us that he does every single time. Now, interestingly as well in this text, we see that these two articles of faith and repentance in the Greek are joined together by one article. When a person becomes a Christian, they both have repentance and faith. They turn from their former way of living, and they put their confidence and faith in God through Christ. Repentance and faith work together. And Paul preached a gospel that held both of these. But next we see that Paul held nothing back physically. Paul held nothing back physically. Let's now look at verses 22 to 24 together. They share with us this, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul now shifts his attention from teaching the elders from his example to remind them that he wasn't going to be there anymore, that there was a coming absence. In verse 22, Paul shares that he is being led by the Holy Spirit to go back to Jerusalem and that he's not sure about what the outcome of this trip is going to be. It shares here that he is constrained to do this task. And the word constrained there in the original language is a word that was often used to mean held together by chains and straps. Or it was also used relationally to describe the marriage covenant. Paul understood that imprisonment, that persecution was going to come, but he felt 
held together, compelled by this obligation that he had been given from the Lord, and he was set to do all that he could to fulfill this obligation that God had called him to do. He held nothing back. And as Paul held nothing back here, we see as well that he wasn't worried about self-preservation. In fact, he understood and lived out what Jesus' teaching was on Luke chapter 9, verse 24, where it says, For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Paul's writings and example alongside Christ's teaching have inspired so many throughout the history of the church. And they inspired so many of these one-way missionaries that we began our time talking about. One of these men that I would like to share with you about was a man in the late 1800s whose name was James Calvert. James committed his life to serving the indigenous people in the Fiji Islands, and reports have shared that upon his visit to the islands, he was warned by the captain to turn back and to go home. The captain said to him, you will lose your life and the lives of those with you if you go among such people. James replied back to this man stating, we died before we came here. Much like Paul, James understood that the purpose of his life was to, as Paul said here, finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel, the grace of God. Now the Lord provided 18 years of fruitful ministry in Fiji to James, where he saw the gospel continue to advance throughout the land to the glory of God. Paul held nothing back physically. But then finally, we see that Paul held nothing back relationally. Look at verses 25 through 27. They say, And now behold, I know that none of, uh, none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul held nothing back relationally with these people. Now, as we see Paul here, we've already talked about the fact that he had built deep relationships with these men and the other people whom he was able to minister to. And these deep relationships allowed Paul to be brutally honest with these men. He shared with them that he would never see them again because of the ministry that God had called him to and likely what would happen to him as he knew he would be persecuted for his faith. He shares in verse 26 something very interesting, though. He shares that he is innocent of the blood of all. So as I was studying this week, I'm sitting there thinking, what does that have to do with what you're talking about about leaving here, Paul? As I studied this out, I found that it refers back all the way back to the prophet of Ezekiel, where in chapter 33, Ezekiel shares about a watchman, a watchman who shares God's declaration. It shares with us this, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them, 
and make him their watchman. And if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who does not hear, excuse me, if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He had heard the sound of his warning of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. Paul held nothing back relationally with these people. And further clarifying his point from earlier, Paul shared that the good news that he shared, not only with the Jews and Greeks, was also shared throughout all the land to any person. He shared throughout the entire region, and in doing so fulfilled his God-given responsibility to do so. He had, as we see through the prophet of Ezekiel, he had sounded the trumpet, he had shared the warning, and now these people had to make a choice. Would they choose to accept or would they choose to reject what Paul had shared with them? Paul's responsibility was now moving. It was moving from this region to be all in at the new region that he was planning to go to. Whatever region Paul was in, he was all in. And so as we look at Paul's example today, and as we think about ourselves, and as we think about the current context that we live in, I just want to take a few minutes and ask you this question, what does it mean to be all in here in Delaware, Ohio? Now we are not in Jerusalem, we're not in Ephesus, we're not in Miletus, we find ourselves here in Delaware, Ohio, or somewhere close to here. And so, as our context is different, as our culture is different, as our time period is different, it's going to look a little bit different to be all in here in Delaware, Ohio. Yet I think from Paul's example, we can see that we can be all in spiritually, evangelistically, physically, and relationally here. And one of the applications we'll talk about at the end is for you to take some time and think about that this week. But let's talk about it for just a few minutes together. And as we think about being all in in Delaware, Ohio, if you're going to be all in spiritually, I think that, first of all, looks like having regularly scheduled time set aside for reading your Bible and for prayer. As well, it involves being committed to your local church fellowship and being here and being in the trenches regularly serving and ministering to others. Your presence here, serving, loving, caring for others, ministering to them, as well as your personal time, spending time in God's word, are going to be areas where you can show that you are all in. Next, though, we go to evangelistically, as we aren't simply just supposed to do these things here. We're supposed to reach out and to share the good news with others, as Paul did. And being all in evangelistically means that you are regularly living out and sharing the gospel with those in your local community. You have others in your network that you are working to win to Christ for his glory. You're faithfully sharing. And that can be both here within the local church context, but it also should be outside of these walls as well, as you have personal responsibility to do so wherever you go, as Paul did. 
physically, it means that you're sacrificing your time and your body for ministry work. And ministry work is a sacrifice, both physically and time-wise. Now, ministry work can be a grind. I will tell you personally that the sorest and most tired weeks of my years, or my year, is the week before and the week during Vacation Bible School. But let me tell you this, and many of you will agree with me on this, it's a great sore. It's great to be able to go to bed at night knowing that you spent your day physically exhausting yourself for the Lord. It's great to wake up that next morning and feel sore knowing we're doing the Lord's work here. Now, that may look different for different ones of us, but God is asking us to be all in, and he's given us a body to do that in. Finally, it's relationally. And relationally, it means that you've built deep Christian relationships where others in your network can come alongside of you and lovingly correct you and minister to you. It's where you have people around you who hold you accountable and who love you. For many of us, you can say as I can, that many of our church family relationships are deeper than many biological family relationships. And that's a real gift from God that he's given us, the local church, where we can, in our context here, have those deep relationships. Now, as we go all in, it's important for us to remember as well that there will be persecution that we face as we're all in. Many of you have shared stories about the persecution that you're facing. To my knowledge, I haven't seen or heard of anyone here in our context here in Delaware, Ohio, who has been facing physical persecution or imprisonment for your faith at this time as Paul did. But I do hear from some of you regarding the social and cultural pressures that you deal with. Some in our congregation right now are having to walk a very thin line knowing that their stance on God's design of there being just two genders, male and female, could cost them their job. You may have heard this, but currently in the state of California, there is a bill that passed the state assembly and is now moving to the state senate that affirms that the sexual transition of a child is a standard of parental responsibility. That means that if a child says they are a different gender than the gender that they were born, the parent would be guilty of child abuse under state law if they did not affirm that gender. In Canada, laws have now been passed where you can now be fined or even imprisoned for, calling some, or for not calling someone by their preferred pronouns. The sexual revolution that our culture is experiencing is for going to be, for many of us, one of the deepest trials and areas of persecution that we face as we hold to God's good design. And for those of you who are facing those things, let me share this with you. Please know that your elders continue to spend time looking at these issues that we continue to spend times in our meetings together talking through how we can help equip you as a church to deal with these trials and how we can assist you to remain all in and standing up for what God's word says is true. 
We will face persecutions as Paul did, as these elders in Ephesus did, as they were all in for their faith. But next we see Paul's exhortation. Paul has an exhortation to share as he moves from sharing about his coming absence to sharing one final piece of encouragement. Let's look down at verses 28 through 35. Beginning in verse 28, it says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one with tears. Verse 32, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all of those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. Verse 35, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul moves to sharing this final note of encouragement. And imagine for a moment having a final conversation with your closest spiritual mentor, and knowing it would be the last time that you would see them. Those final departing words that they would share with you would likely be incredibly significant to you. They would be words that you would remember and that you would think about for long after their departure. And Paul, having built these men up in their faith, having discipled them, having trained them, has a few final words to share with them. And I believe that Paul begins his address here, sharing the most important admonition. And that's this in verse 28, the first part of it there, examine yourselves. Paul shares with these men who are elders that they are to examine themselves. Before a spiritual overseer can attend to the needs of the church, they first have to take care of their own spiritual needs. That's not a selfish thing to do. It's an important thing to do. They must be spending time in God's word, spending time in prayer, and making sure that their own personal relationship with the Lord continues to grow. I think Paul brings this up first because in the midst of the hustle and muscle of ministry life, it can be very easy to set aside that quiet time of prayer, that quiet time of spending time in God's word as, I'll get to that later, I have more pressing things to do. Yet, this is the most important thing for an elder to do, for a leader to do, and really for the whole body of Christ to be doing, is to examine yourselves and to practically and personally be spending time with the Lord. Now, practically at DBC, with your elder board right now, you can see this in many ways, but I'll share a couple. The first way that you can see it is that every elder in our church 
has an accountability partner that they meet with each month and they check up on one another. They ask each other hard questions. And then as we gather together at the elder meeting, we share that we've met with each other. And if there are elders who haven't met together for, let's say, a couple months together, they're brought to account on that. We are to examine ourselves, and we are to have others do that. And you as a congregation do that as well. You examine, as we list men who we would like to see being brought on to the elder board, you share with us if there are, er or there are areas there in their lives that do not line up for the biblical qualifications of an elder. As well, as we examine ourselves and as we take that personal time, one of the ways that we see that right now is through the sabbatical that Pastor Scott is currently on. As he has the opportunity to take time to feed and nourish his own soul for an extended amount of time, to get away from the hustle and bustle of the ministry needs here, and to plan at this time where he can focus on his spiritual walk, his family's spiritual walk, and as well how he can lead and shepherd the church upon his return. It's important that we examine ourselves. I've been blessed to serve as Vacation Bible School Director here at DBC over our past nine Vacation Bible Schools. Would have been ten, but COVID knocked us out for one year there. But a few years back, I was able to, for the first time, attend the Answers in Genesis Vacation Bible School Conference. I think it was three years ago. It was the winter before we held Mystery Island here at DBC. And throughout the conference, it was a day-long conference, and I think it was late January. And throughout this conference, uh, the Answers in Genesis leaders would overview all the specifics about the program, the curriculum, and everything going on with the program. There were also a few breakout sessions that we were able to attend, and the breakout session that I was most looking forward to and that I got the most out of was the VBS director's session. I was looking forward to rubbing shoulders with some other directors, learning about their program, about some of the things that they do, getting some good ideas and some tips from some areas that I'd like to improve in our program. And it was an excellent session. I learned many of those things. But what stuck out to me the most was actually the beginning of the session. And that's because the beginning of the session was held by the person who actually writes the curriculum for the program. And as well, she directs her church's program at her church in Hilliard, Ohio. Now, as she opened the session, she shared that her entire focus wasn't on how you can make registration run more smoothly, how to recruit volunteers, what awesome snacks that you should do, how you can have the funnest games in town. No, it wasn't anything to do with the nuts and bolts of the program at all. Her focus in this room of directors was solely on the spiritual health of the directors who were there. She spent her time continually encouraging us to focus significant time on our spiritual preparation as we prepared to lead others. And that session has continued to stick with me since I went to it there. 
she shared a phrase that has been stuck in my mind since then and one that I have since shared at every one of our VBS volunteer meetings and ones that I probably shared at other times as well, and that's this. It's hard to pour out if you aren't filled up. It's incredibly hard to shepherd, to spiritually invest in the lives of other people if you haven't invested in those private, personal times of devotion and prayer. It's incredibly important for elders, but for all of us here in the church, to examine ourselves. That's the first thing that Paul told these guys to do, is examine yourself. Secondly, then, he shares with them that after examining themselves, they are to shepherd the flock. It shares in verse 28, after he says, pay careful to yourselves, pay careful attention to yourselves, he says, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. So let's stop there. As we look here within the text, we see that the official title of these men were elders, but the term overseers described their function. Elders are charged with shepherding the flock. So what does it mean to shepherd the flock? Well, the word for shepherd here is the Greek word poimaio, which holds to a shepherd feeding and leading the flock. The shepherd must first make sure that he's being fed, but he also must make sure that he is feeding his flock. His congregation is who he is charged to feed and lead in a way that they are spiritually growing in their faith. So as we relate that to our context here, in our context here, our elders are primarily the ones who are teaching the Bible here in our large group contexts. There may be others who speak God's word here on a Sunday morning or in a different event, but there is no word ministry in this church that isn't overseen by some member of the elder board. There may be other godly servants teaching, and an example of that that we could see would be Tracy Teedy overseeing the women's Bible studies. But ultimately, there's an elder or multiple elders looking over what is being taught and making sure it aligns with what we believe the Bible teaches. This falls into smaller matters as well. As earlier this week, Dave Sunderman brought the Issue 1 pro-life materials to me from the Center for Christian Virtues, and I looked over them to make sure that they, that they aligned with what we would believe as a church. We make sure that what we're sharing, not only from the pulpit, but from the literature that you're receiving and what you're learning from here, is, ones that, is literature that aligns with what we believe doctrinally. Unrelated to this text, but important to the church, is that the elders also lead in much of the oversight and governance of the church. 
I, as an elder, have oversight of much of the day-to-day facilities and administrative needs of the church and work with many of the people who are involved in those things. There are other deacons and leaders who help with these matters, but our Constitution is set up in such a way that these leaders report to an elder, and ultimately I report to the elder board. There are many examples of this that we see, but we see a plurality of leadership being the New Testament model as these men go and shepherd the flock. Interestingly here as well, we see that these elders were to help shepherd the flock from being drawn away from ravenous wolves. Wolves coming in and messing with the flock could cause great damage. And there are times when we as elders must sit at our meetings and discuss specific teachers that some in the congregation have shared that they have been listening to or reading and that we're learning might say some squirrely things. And we have to then determine if that teacher is teaching doctrine that is heretical and sometimes disguisingly heretical. There have been times where teachers have had shifts in what they've taught. And so then we have had to ask those people not to be sharing those things. We've had to warn our congregation against them. There have been times where we've removed teachers, for example, from Right Now Media, because they began teaching doctrines that were contrary to what we believe the Bible teaches. Now, each of these situations are case by case, and so the elders of the church have to know what they're looking at. They have to be well-read. And they have to be very careful and on guard as we watch for wolves. Interestingly, this text shares not only from outside, but also from within one another. Later in Paul's writings to Timothy, he condemns the false teachers who had arisen from the congregation in the church of Ephesus. Paul was as well foreshadowing future events here. This was important to Paul. He says in verse 31, Be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. He personally admonished them. He spent himself shepherding the flock both day and night. Next, Paul admonishes these men to look towards the heavenly reward and and not for an earthly reward. I have never met a man who has been rich serving as an elder of a church. And Paul here shares that that shouldn't be what they're looking for. Verse 32, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Verse 33, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Truly God-honoring leaders, Truly God-honoring churches and ministries aren't focused on building up treasures in heaven. It's not about our bank account here on this earth. It's about the eternal inheritance that God gifts us with. Paul shares here that we are to work hard, 
that we are to help the weak, that we are to focus on giving instead of receiving as God has given us all good things. It's good for us to shepherd well, to work hard in shepherding the flock, and to not look towards the heavenly reward, or I'm sorry, to look towards the heavenly reward, not the earthly reward. Finally, then, our last point that we see is Paul's embrace. Verses 36 through 38 end this chapter. And they say, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all, and they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. What a fitting way for these Christian brothers to end their time together. They prayed, they cried, and they accompanied Paul for as long as they could until it was time to go. Truly what a picture of what Christian friendship is. These verses remind me of the fact that one of the greatest gifts that God has given the body of Christ is that of friendship with one another. It's a beautiful thing, like Paul, to have relationships like this with other believers, where you care deeply for one another, where it hurts to leave, where you've served in the trenches of ministry together, and when they leave, it's, there's tears. Those are the types of relationships that we should be cultivating as a body of Christ. If you want to be all in, you need relationships like that. And so as we see this final embrace, I just have a couple of final applications to share with you. First of all, has your life been transformed by the gospel like Paul's has? You see earlier in the book of Acts, you will see that Paul was not originally a man who had walked a life that was changed by the gospel like this. But God did a miraculous work in saving him. And he can do the same for you as well. And if you're here this morning and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, there's no good work that you could ever do. There's no amount of money that you could give to the church. There is nothing that you could do to be transformed by the gospel except the Bible says, call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. You can do that on your own sitting there this morning. And I would encourage you to do so if you haven't. But if you would like to talk to someone after the service is over, myself, one of the other elders who led this morning, Pastor Aaron in announcements, Steve in prayer, one of the other leaders that you see on the board as you leave, we would love to be able to take God's word, to open it up and share with you how you can have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I promise you it's the most important decision that you will ever make because it is the only decision that you will ever make that will have eternal consequences. Has your life been transformed like Paul's has? Secondly, let me ask you this. Are you all in like Paul was? Take some time this week to think about that. To examine what it looks like to be all in in your context. We all live 
or most of us here, there may be some visitors, live here in this context in Delaware, Ohio, but we have our own context, our own places of work and service, our own families that we go to, our own areas that we grow and go and have relationships with people in. And so think to yourself practically, what does that look like in my context? Life group leaders. This can be a question that you can consider during your small group time tonight or throughout this week when you meet. What does it look like for me to be all in like Paul was all in? Maybe for you it's considering some of those ministry opportunities that were shared or asking about others that relate to the gifts that you have. Be all in. Finally then, I would encourage you to examine the areas that we studied from Paul's life. We studied many. And work on an action plan in regards to how you can grow in these areas through the rest of the summer. If you say, I need to grow in evangelism, then think to yourself, who are some people that I can share the good news with, that I can cultivate relationships with to get there this summer? If you struggle in the areas of being all in spiritually, what do you have to do to make sure that reading your Bible and prayer is a priority? Maybe it's cutting out one TV show a day and spending that time there. Maybe it's getting up a little bit earlier in the morning before you go to work and before everything starts and spending that time. Practically, what can you do? Work on an action plan on how you can be all in, as Paul was all in. When I think of Paul's life and how I think that he was all in, an example I'm reminded of is one fine, a one-way missionary. And this missionary's name was Peter Milne. Peter selected the area now known as Vanuatu as his mission field. Every other missionary who had attempted to reach the people group here that Peter felt called to reach had been killed. Peter believed that God was calling him here to this field, and he ventured out anyways. He packed his coffin, and he went to the island. And God blessed Peter with 50 years of ministry on the islands. When he died of natural causes, the tribe that he reached buried him with this note on his tombstone. When he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. May the same be said of you and I. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, it's a privilege to be here this morning and to hear truth from your word. God, truly, you have given us so great a salvation that we need to be all in. And God, I pray for each person that's listening today that you would share share with us applications of how we can be practically all in wherever we find ourselves. Lord, if there would be one person here who does not know the saving truth that is found in the gospel, I pray that they would not leave here this morning before making sure that they have eternal security that can be found through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and by calling upon the name of the Lord for salvation. For us who know that we are your followers, God, I pray that as we go about this week, that we would set our focus on being all in, spiritually, physically, emotionally, 
in all the different ways that you have called us to be. Lord, help us to be all in. Sharing the good news with others, building relationships, and God, sharing of the wonderful inheritance that is ahead for us as believers. Help us not to look to worldly treasures, but to things to come. God, may you and you alone receive the glory in all of these things. We pray them in Jesus' name. Amen.